All right, so we are going to uh, um, jump into the parables this morning. But before we do, just want to ask what stood out to you last week about our study of Jesus's cleansing of the temple. And I've got some prompts there with the pictures. So anything stand out? Yeah, Joe. No, but that's true. Yeah, totally. So yeah, Joe, that's one of the things that stands out to me too, Joe's Sharon, just <clears throat> how that nobody stopped Jesus. Nobody like, there weren't any bouncers that jumped on him and <clears throat> said, what are you doing here? Um, and uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a little... Interesting. I, I'd never really thought of this as one of the miracles of Christ, but John Gill brings that out. For one man to go into this area just with a little tool and drive out all the animals and all the individuals and nobody stops him and the Roman soldiers don't arrest him. Um, it's, yeah, just very interesting. So our, our outline last week, if you remember, so we were talking about the zeal of Christ. We talked about where he went, which was the temple, what he found, a bunch of people selling in the temple selling these animals and money changers was not the problem. This was something that had been going on for a long time. It was the location that it was in the temple. And there does seem to be an indication that um, that there was undue profit. This should have been something to benefit Israel, but people were making a lot of money on it. What he did, he gets angry and throws everybody out. Why he did it, he says... My house, my father's house should not be a place of merchandise. In another passage, this is a house of prayer. Um, and then the signs he gave, we talked about last week, they asked for a sign. He says, tear down this um, temple and I'll build it up in three days. It's kind of a obscure, kind of almost concealing type of message. But then later on, he's healing a bunch of people. And then um, <clears throat> the commitment he withheld, he, so he does not commit himself to these people that he was doing miracles with because he knew what was in man. So he knew what was in their hearts. So this is kind of what Joe was referring to. John Gill says, this action of his in driving out the merchants with their cattle um, shows um, and was a surprising instant of his divine power and is equal to other miracles of his. So very, yeah, very miraculous <clears throat> that Jesus would come in. We didn't really have time to get into just the whole issue of righteous and unrighteous anger. You can go back and look at that in the notes. And um, But there there is something to learn here that you can express anger righteously as Jesus did. But then again, he's Jesus. So we have to be very careful in how we express our anger, leaving judgment to the Lord and so on. 
This morning we're going to be talking about Jesus teaching in the parables or in a parabolic type of method or form. And um, it raises this question, why did Jesus teach using parables? And that's really the, the section that we're looking at. This is the main question. And Jesus answers this question. And his answer to the question is somewhat confusing. I don't know how many of you guys saw my email last night, but uh, many of us, all of us have had teachers in our lifetime, some good teachers, some bad teachers. <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but the teachers that I consider to be good teachers in my life, either in high school or college, what have you, <clears throat> were people that had a knack for explaining things, making it seem simple and very understandable. And when somebody can really help me understand a complex subject, <clears throat> put it in simple terms that I can get my mind around, you, you feel like that's a good teacher. Now I understand. Some of the bad teachers I had, things were so complicated. They didn't seem to know what they were doing. It was hard to understand. <clears throat> well, that whole method is going to raise a very interesting question when we look at this passage. Is Does Jesus want everybody to understand that's listening to him? And the answer is no. <clears throat> He's not teaching for everybody to get it which throws his, what we call his pedagogy, or his method of teaching, in question. Why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to get it? Especially since we're talking about the gospel here. So that's, that's what we're going to be talking about. Let's define a parable from your curriculum. This is from your reading this week. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I like that definition. It's, it's pretty simple. Um, it's normally has to do with very common things that happen in everyday life, but the teacher is trying to point to something else. Um, and hopefully, I'm not sure if we'll have time for this, but I'm hoping that we can get to kind of the interpretation of parables. We're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew 13, but one of the big interpretive principles of parables is there's normally one main meaning. We're not looking for meanings under every single stone in a parable. It's normally a story to get at one idea. And if you read any of the literature out there, especially in the medieval period, you'll find people trying to interpret every little detail of a parable and giving it a spiritual meaning. But normally there's one meaning, and normally the meaning comes towards the end of the parable. And so... We'll kind of maybe get to that a little bit later, if not today, next week. What we want to do is 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 we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Matthew 13. So if you can go ahead and turn there to Matthew 13. As we look at this parable as somewhat of an example of parables in general, <clears throat> but it's really going to help us see some interesting Things about the way Christ approaches teaching. So we're going to call this section Parabolic Pedagogy of Christ. That's a mouthful. The Parabolic Pedagogy of Christ. Parabolic meaning parables, right? Teaching in parables. Pedagogy is just... In it. I know we have some teachers. Bill's a retired teacher. Any other teachers in the room? Okay, good. So pedagogy is just your method or philosophy of teaching. Anybody who goes to, if you go to study to be a teacher, you're going to 
have courses that will talk about your pedagogy. What's the best way of teaching so that your students get the material and they're able to learn and grow? Well, Jesus clearly has a pedagogy. He's um, going to be teaching parables. In fact, some people say that one-third of all of Christ's words in the New Testament are parables. And your curriculum that you guys read this week indicates that about halfway through Christ's ministry, he began to teach, at least publicly, almost exclusively in parables. So he starts off with a smaller group. He's doing a lot of, you know, one-on-one, three-on-three, 12-on-12 instruction. Then you've got like the Sermon on the Mount, things like that. Uh, but then the further he, closer he gets to the cross, the more he starts teaching in parables. And um, so we're going to be investigating that and why he does that um, in chapter 13. So let's first of all, I've got what amounts, I think, five points. So we're going to first of all look at the classroom. So let's start in verse 1, the classroom. On the same day, and I'm reading from a New King James, by the way. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So this is our classroom or setting. It's a very nice classroom setting right be out on the beach teaching your students right Uh, could be some distractions but it says on the same day in verse one this is probably the same day back if you look back to chapter 12 the same day that he healed the mute demon possessed blind person so this is a person that was both blind and deaf probably couldn't speak and was also demon possessed what a really just terrible position to be in. Um, Jesus heals this person. By the way, I don't know if if you guys are familiar with this ministry, but we support a a mission called Biblical Ministries Worldwide. And and in Los Angeles, actually near Pasadena, they have a facility for the deaf and blind where they minister to them. It's an amazing ministry. If you want to look it up sometime, Biblical Ministries Worldwide, deaf and blind and there are people that live there. They suit them with apartments. And there's people that minister the gospel to them. It's incredible. A person stands up and preaches. And then there's people with each deaf-blind person one-on-one. They watch the preacher. And then they sign into the hands of each individual. So they're hearing the gospel preached from somebody who's preaching from the pulpit. And then individually someone is signing into their hands. Incredible. Um, you, they've got an amazing uh, video if you go look on... It's not YouTube. What's the other one? Uh, Vimeo. So it's on Vimeo, I think. Anyway, that's a sideline. <clears throat> so Jesus heals a person like that. On that same day, he's had these interactions with the Pharisees. Then remember, his mom and brothers show up outside. They want to talk to him. He says, who are my brothers and mother? It's those who do the will of the father. But then he, uh, he comes outside perhaps to meet with his mothers and brothers out of the house. Then he sits by the sea. Um, This is probably almost certainly the Sea of Galilee and other places called the Sea of Tiberias. And uh, perhaps he's sitting there just to have some family time, maybe to take a break. He's been very busy. But you know what happens when Jesus goes out to take a break, right? A crowd gathers. So, So he's out here in the classroom of the of the sea. A great multitude gathers together. And so he gets into a boat and sits 
and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So now we have this classroom, right? Um, and his teaching lectern is he gets up in a ship. So you have to imagine this is not like a little rowboat. This is something that would give him some height and ability to project out to a very large group. Some people say that he may have been a little bit out to sea enough to cause his voice to um, be uh, amplified on the water. Does that make sense? <clears throat> have any of you guys ever been, any of you guys go fishing up there to Mammoth? And uh, you could, you know, you could be across the water from somebody and hear them talking in low tones and, and yet the and their voice will come across the water, right? That kind of idea. Or your kids, you tell your kids, hey, there's fishermen out here. Keep your voices down. We don't want to scare the fish away. And you hear them making lots of noise across the water on the rocks. Sam! Sam! And he hears it, right? Because my whisper is traveling across the water. And he turns around and realizes, wait, I'm supposed to be a little more quiet than this. I don't want to scare away the big one, right? Um, so that could be <clears throat> what's going on. So that kind of takes us to the to the students. Who's out here? Um, well, it's a multitude. Verse 2, it's a great multitude um, are gathered together. <clears throat> so um, whenever you see the word multitude, we don't know exactly how many people this represents, but this would clearly indicate that this isn't just the disciples, the 12. It's not just those who um, are following Jesus for all the right reasons and have been touched by the Holy Spirit. This, these are people who are following him for many, could be many different reasons. They want to hear about the controversy that's going on between he and the uh, Pharisees. Uh, maybe they've heard about healing. They want to come see a show. Maybe they want to get healed themselves. Maybe they want, they, they're feeling distance from God. They want to hear the gospel. There's lots of different reasons why this multitude could be gathered. So let's talk about the lesson. We're going to call it the lesson concealed. So he starts in verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying. So there's lots of things he says. If you guys are familiar with this chapter, the whole rest of the chapter is parables. So these would almost certainly be a sampling of the things that he taught. Um, but there may be more things than are actually recorded. Um, he says, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Um, and as he sowed, <clears throat> some seed fell by the wayside. Now, when I was teaching this to my, uh, my family last night, my little guy, Samuel, a sower went out to sow. I have to explain to him that that's not sowing like this, right? It's what farmers do. They throw seed out onto the land. So we're talking about throwing seed. Um, he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. So I'm, I'm not a farmer, but as I read about farmers and read commentaries about this stuff, that theoretically, you know, a farmer would intend to throw seed this way, but as he's sticking his hand in the, in the bag, some may fall out, right? Um, or... If he's got an oxen that's kind of trying to bring the ground up, and if he's got some sort of mechanical device that's putting seed down, that could fall off to the side. 
and it falls by the wayside. Now, the wayside here, the, literal, the idea is, is, a, is a pathway or a trail. So this would be the hard ground. If any of you guys ever go hiking up in the mountains, you'll have all this wonderful greenery around you. But on the trail, is there anything growing? No, this, this trail has been packed down by human feet. Nothing's really growing on the trail unless nobody's been hiking. Even, sometimes even trails where nobody's hiked there for a long time, it's still dirt, right? Uh, my son and I in Marina Valley, there's a big old dirt field with some hills that we like to go out to and shoot BB guns, and he's got an arrow. And when we drive back into this area, um, there's nothing growing on the road that you take to drive, right? There's some rocky areas where there's some things growing, then there's a bunch of weeds over here, and then you can tell there's this area that's actually been dug up and plowed. Somebody used to use that. You can tell just the way it's in this big circle. Somebody was using it at some point for something. In fact, there's an old, old kind of cement aqueduct where somebody years past was bringing water down from the hill. Um, but so, but nothing's growing on this kind of dirt driveway. And so that's that's the idea here. And the birds came down and devoured them. So you throw some seed out on this driveway, and the birds eventually notice it. They come down, and they eat it up. He goes on and says, Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they, uh, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they became withered. So you will see some things that will grow up in real stony, shallow ground. And Jesus is talking to a bunch of people that would have been very aware of this. It's a very agrarian society. Yeah, we've seen that kind of stuff. And, you know, we've seen plants grow up and then die immediately if it's not in, in good enough ground. Uh, then verse 7, some fell among the thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So the the hundredfold, sixty, thirty, the idea would be here is if theoretically you threw out ten seeds, hundredfold would be a thousand, right? A thousand, you know, there's there's just lots of growth happening. So sixty, thirty, hundredfold of the investment. Right? I think it's more the investment idea. And then he ends by saying, verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is kind of interesting. This is the same day that he healed a deaf, blind, mute who is demon-possessed. And then he's saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a very common phrase that Jesus would use. So that's the lesson. That's the end of the lesson. So you have to imagine Jesus says these things from the boat and perhaps with many other parables and then he gets out of the boat and just starts walking away which raises an obvious question you know what does all this mean you've told us these stories the story of a farmer what what does this mean <clears throat> we've got four different soils and so you guys can imagine this um a lot of you guys, there's lots of places around here where you can hike and stuff. So the 
The first type of soil, like we talked about, is a hard pathway. Second type of soil, there's rocky ground. Maybe you guys like to go rock climbing and stuff like that. You're normally not going to see a bunch of things growing around the rocks. Then there's kind of the weedy thorn areas. But then it's real clear when you drive around here where soil has been turned up and where you could imagine something growing there. Even when I was talking to my son last night, we were talking about our BB gun arrow area, which we just happened to go to yesterday. And he was able to identify those places. And I asked him if we tried to plant a tomato plant out there in that soft ground where your arrows stick in nice, do you think it would grow? He goes, yeah, I think it would grow there. What about where we drive the car? Do you think anything would grow there? No. Why? It's too hard. You know, so we just kind of went through. So you could see like Jesus t t telling stories like this, even a child, right, could at least hear the, the visual of it and get an idea of the farming. But if you just stop right there, as Jesus does, what's the point? And that brings us to the method explained is now the multitudes have left. And it says in verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you speaking <clears throat> to the multitudes in this kind of way? And it's not because parabolic teaching was brand new. There's lots of evidence, um, documented parables and evidence of Jewish teachers. There's some really famous Jewish teachers, in fact, that taught in parables. So I don't know that that's really what they're asking. Why, why are you teaching in parables? Um, it's more that there's no explanation. Normally, the parabolic Jewish teachers would teach a parable and then tell you, here's what that means. Like, remember, Nathan went and told David a story, right? He'd tell you a story about a guy who had this lamb and he really loved him and he was a pet to him. But then a, a rich guy came and took it and killed it and offered it up for food because he didn't want to take from his own flock. Right? It's a story to get to a point, And then he tells David, here's the point. You're the man. Right? So it's very clear what that story was and where it was going. Um, it, but Jesus is telling all these stories, but he's not explaining. And so the disciples have a very, it's an excellent question. And so here's the way Jesus answers this in a way that if, if we had never read this story before, this should be kind of shocking and surprising. Uh, those of you that have been hearing this story since Sunday school, you read this, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. But just imagine you're the disciples. You're saying, Jesus, why aren't you explaining the parables? He says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That's a very odd answer. You, you're really getting right away. Jesus is setting up this us them kind of thing. Um, it hasn't been given to them to understand these mysteries, but to you. And, and in context, this is not just the 12. We know from Mark chapter four, verse 10, you can go look at that yourself. There's others that are there that are in this category of disciples. And so to you all, um, the mysteries of the kingdom have been given, but to them, the mysteries have not been given. That's why I'm teaching them in parables and not explaining the parable. He goes on further, verse 12, for whoever has to him will be given, more will be given, and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. 
Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This doesn't really ring fair, does it? Like if you're in Jesus' class and he's teaching concepts that's confusing everybody, then he takes this little group and says, come on over here, and he starts explaining to them what's going on, but these others, he's like, well, it's not been given to them, but it's been given to you. It's like, it's like who, who are the teacher's pets here, right? It's like you've got this group called the disciples that seem to be the teacher's pets. You've got this whole other group called the multitudes <clears throat> that are being left out of the explanation. And Jesus says it just hasn't been given to them. Um, it has been given to you. The mysteries are given to you. Um, and by the way, those who have, more will be given to them. In fact, it's going to be taken from these and given to the ones who have. This should rub us wrong. And, and we need to remember when we're reading through the Bible, if you start to feel a certain way, it's intended almost always. So when you start to feel uncomfortable with what Jesus is saying, that's not accidental. It's, we're not, it, you're not the first person in history to read this section and feel uncomfortable. He's saying this stuff on purpose to make the disciples feel uncomfortable. He's driving towards a point. And so let's let's try to figure out what this is. Um, so so he goes back. So he says these um, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see hearing. They do not hear nor do they understand. But then he goes further. Verse 14. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. So there's a, a fulfillment of a prophecy that's happening right now with the multitudes hearing you will hear and shall not understand seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull their ears are hard of hearing their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that i should heal them <clears throat> so he's going back and he's 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 reciting um this prophecy uh, from Isaiah, this was a prophecy that was given to Judah. Um, you guys remember Isaiah is written largely to the southern tribes. There's all kinds of prophets that came and had warned Judah. And over hundreds of years, you know, there were some pockets of revival, like underneath Josiah, the end of Manasseh's life. But for the most part, there's igno ignoring of the prophecies. And um, and so Isaiah is saying. Um, Okay, now we're moving into a time of judgment. No longer am I going to be giving them very clear prophecies. They're, I'm now going to be confusing them. I'm now going to close their eyes. They want to harden their hearts. They're closing their eyes. I will help them with what's called judicial blindness. They, I, I will no longer open their eyes um, so that they should see, so that they should understand the truth. And so part of what we're seeing here is there is both a sovereign decree and a human culpability. Judah had been sent prophecies for hundreds of years, and yet they turned a deaf ear to these prophecies, wanted to persist in their Baal worship and their idolatry. So finally there comes a point where God says, fine, you don't want to hear, you don't want to repent, I will now help you in this hardening process. It's similar to what you see in Romans 1, 
where God turns them over, turns them over, turns them over because they did not want the truth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter, I think it's chapter 2, it says God will send them a strong delusion so that they could not believe, should not believe the truth. So there is this thing in the Bible called, uh, it's a divine judgment or divine hardening that we need to be aware of. And so when the, the disciples are asking, why are you teaching them in parables? Remember, um, the parables really start to increase about halfway through Christ's ministry. He's going toe to toe with these Pharisees, scribes and Sadducees. And many in the multitude are following along, either just wanting to see the show or going along with the Pharisees, scribes and Sadducees. So Jesus begins basically backpedaling away from the multitudes and just starts telling them parables. So this this fulfilled prophecy is it's a it's a uh, there's a dual fulfillment. We see this a lot in prophecy. There was a, a partial fulfillment, an early fulfillment with Judah, but it was looking towards another fulfillment here in Christ's life as he was prophesied to come and teach in parables. And now he is starting to do this divine withdrawal from the people of Israel, particularly as represented by the Jew, the Jewish leadership, Pharisees and Sadducees. So as they continue now, remember Jesus, when he um, after he heals the blind, deaf, demon possessed mute, he gets into this debate with the Pharisees where they begin to accuse him of healing in the power of Satan. Remember that? And and Jesus then begins to talk about what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm out here, the Messiah healing people. You're saying that my power comes from the devil. Then he talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus is doing this divine withdrawal and starting to teach in parables. When he's asked why is he teaching in parables, he says, so that they can't believe. So what do we have here? We have divine judgment <clears throat> coming upon Israel. We know that Israel as a people group, many of them are going to get saved, but many, most of them are going to reject the Messiah. He will be crucified. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to be demolished, right? So just as Babylon came down and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Judah and wiped out Jerusalem, but then there was a return after the Messiah is crucified, the church begins to be built up, but then the church starts getting persecuted and picked on. God brings Titus in, bam, and just destroys Jerusalem. So not really what we wanted to hear, but so we that's the method. You have this this divine, um, divine judgment, which brings us to the last section here, and that is the lesson revealed. <clears throat> so the disciples at this point, when they hear Christ's explanation about how that he is telling them parables so that they should stay in darkness because they really don't want to know the truth anyway. It should have the effect of making the hair rise up on the back of the necks of the disciples. The question that should be entering their minds and should be entering our minds is, oh boy, is that going to be my fate? What about me? If Jesus is now basically withdrawing himself from these people in divine judgment, where does that leave me? And that's where we get to verse 16. But notice what he says in verse 16 and following. But blessed are your eyes, for they 
see and your ears for they hear. That's an amazing passage. Blessed, so happy, providentially blessed are your eyes and your ears. You see and you hear. And it raises the question. There's a lot of parables kind of have this implied question behind them that doesn't always get answered in the text, but you're expected to know the answer. The question that we should be asking here is, if you're a disciple, why do I see and why do I hear? Why is that? Why am I the blessed one who is seeing and hearing? One way you could answer that is say, because I'm smart enough, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me, right? Anybody know that skit from Al Franken? Most of you guys don't know. Okay. Um, so um, is that the right answer? That, you know, the disciples were just smart enough people. They figured it out. They were committed enough. They were, they sacrificed enough. They were radical enough. Is that why? Absolutely not. And I, I think there's a there's a key. There's a couple clues here why we can say absolutely not, just like Brian did. The first clue is the word blessed. The word blessed always has this idea of something that has happened unto us, not that we're doing to ourselves. Blessed. That's a state of being that is granted to us by God. Blessed. Remember way back to the, this is the same book where we heard the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How did the disciples get to a place of being poor in spirit? At least they're on that journey of being poor in spirit. Christ had taught them as bringing them along to help them see that they cannot be saved by the law. They must try to be perfect. They can't be perfect. So therefore they needed to depend upon Christ. Blessed are your eyes and your ears. Now, what happened the same day again? Who did Jesus heal? A deaf, blind, mute, demon-possessed. They watched it happen, right? How did that deaf, blind, mute, who was demon-possessed, get to a place where he could now see and hear and talk and no longer be demon-possessed? How did that happen? He was healed. It was a miracle. He didn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He didn't suddenly say, you know what? I'm tired of being blind. I'm going to work a lot harder and I'm going to start seeing right now. You know, I, I'm tired of being deaf. I'm going to go out and really exercise my eardrums and I'm going to start hearing. No, this was a miraculous work of God's blessed grace. And so Jesus says to these disciples, blessed are your eyes. They see your ears for they hear. Um, and no doubt they're blessed because of this spiritual awakening that's happened, but also they're blessed because of the position that they're in in history, as he says in the very next verse. For certainly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but did not see it to hear it, what you hear and did not hear it. So these are righteous men that he's talking about now. These prophets who are righteous before you, they prophesied about this. They would have loved to be in your position but here you are, you're blessed spiritually because your eyes have been spiritually open, but you're also blessed in a physical historical sense because you've been put in this situation where you're actually able to look at the Son of God that was prophesied about previously. But then notice what he says in verse 18. Therefore, 
hear the parable of the sower. Think about that. What's, Jesus is now going to go on and explain what this means. He says, you're blessed, and now I am going to explain it to you. I mean, think about this. The, the multitudes were blind, and Jesus was not going to explain it to them. Now these blessed people are in the position to hear the Son of God explain to them the meaning of the parable. So what Jesus is doing for the disciples here is the same thing the Holy Spirit's going to be doing when Jesus goes to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit. Remember later he's going to say, unless I leave, the Holy Spirit cannot come. It's good for me to leave, so the Holy Spirit will come. When he comes, he'll guide you into all what? Truth. So what the Holy Spirit is going to do in the future bringing Christ's words to mind and helping them understand the import of it, what the Holy Spirit does for us today when we read the Bible. Jesus is doing the Holy Spirit's function right there, eye to eye, face to face with the disciples. He's explaining his word. He's illuminating this parable. What a blessed position to be in, to have the Son of God explaining this parable right in front of them. So then he, so he goes into the explanation. Verse 19 when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so now we're using the word hear in a different way, they, it's hitting their eardrums, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside or on the walkway, on the hard ground, right? So here's, so here's, the, here's the understanding. It's the seed is the word of the kingdom, so this is the gospel. You know, the kingdom of heaven is God's reign on earth and the way that he's going to distribute that reign through Jesus Christ and his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his return. That's a mouthful, but that's kind of the summary of the word of the kingdom. So somebody hears about the gospel, but they don't understand it. Their heart hasn't been awakened. They don't have the eyes to understand it. Um, then the devil, the wicked one, comes and snatches away what was sown, um, this is he who received the seed on the hard ground. So there's people who are going to, they hear the physical words of the gospel. They can hear it hit their eardrum, but it hits hard ground, just lays there. It does nothing. It's like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wah, 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 wah. But the devil, this is with the spooky part, the devil as represented, a lot of times when we say the wicked one, it's, it's like this, it's a figure of speech, like a metonym, I think is the term, where you take the leader is representing the whole. So it's really talking about demons, right? When we say something like George Bush bombed Iraq, what does that mean? Did George Bush fly one big plane and bomb Iraq? No, we're talking about the leader as representative of the whole sent armies. When you say the wicked one, you're really talking about demons, so anytime we're sitting here in church, this is the thing that should spook us out, is we're sitting here in church, we're singing the gospel, we're preaching the gospel. There are demons just in the air, this, uh, looking around to take seed from that's hitting hard hearts. There's really a spiritual component. That's what Jesus is revealing. We wouldn't know this information if Jesus didn't tell us, but there's seed that goes out, it's not understood. It hits hard ground. The wicked one comes and just snatches it right away. That should make the hair rise up on the back of our neck. Um, that, the, that, that there's a spiritual thing, warfare going on. But then, 
verse 20, but he who received the seed on stony places, this one is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. So this person's ground, so they hear the gospel. Initially, they're like, yeah, that's true. I like that. Uh, maybe they affirm the historical faith. They believe that Jesus really did live on the earth. They look out. They see there's good moral things that happen because of Christianity. Uh, religion is very important to society. If you look at read some of our founding fathers, many of them said that religion is so important. We must keep God in the society. It doesn't mean they were saved. They just saw that it had benefits. Um, I remember Benjamin Franklin went and heard George Whitfield preach on a number of occasions, thought that he was an incredible preacher. At one point he said, that's the one guy that could just make me want to take every dollar or every coin out of my pocket and I want to give it. Benjamin Franklin, to my knowledge, never got saved. He was a you know, deist to the end, even created his own religion, and, um, but thought that George Whitfield was a great guy. So they hear... Um, receive it with joy yet it has no root in himself but endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word immediately he stumbles so the sun rises up which represents persecution <clears throat> they're being called to account to to stand for christ and they don't in john you can write this reference down john 12 verses 42 and 43 there were those of the Pharisees and Sadducees that did believe, but there were, but a lot of them would not state it publicly because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. So there were some who were thrown out of the synagogue that would stand for Christ, and even w with loss of their status, they stood for Christ. There's others that just would not make that stand. And so this has been going on since the beginning of time. You guys have all seen it. I remember when I became a true Christian at 14 years old in high school, I had friends that would come and talk with me about Christian things. But as soon as their other friends came and joined our group, they would immediately turn coat, start using foul language or this, that to make it very clear to their buddies that they weren't around me, the Jesus freak. They weren't too buddy, buddy with me. Um, they wanted to make sure that their associations were very clearly stated um, and you guys have probably all seen this and experienced it yeah the reference was john 12 verses 42 and 43 yeah then so so that covers the stony grounds we have the the hard path we have the stones verse 22 now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful so what are the thorns? It's, it's cares, it's riches. Um, they have an appreciation for the gospel. Maybe they go to church, they hear the gospel preach. There's a part of their hearts that you know, affirms and, and recognizes the value of the gospel. But they just, quite frankly, get caught up. I think of how many um, pop stars and music stars and things like that that started in the church. Uh, you go see them when they first start singing on American Idol or The Voice or something like that. They get up there. They look so cute. And they say they're a Christian. And they get up there and they have an amazing voice. And they win some competition. And then two years later, you look at them and you're like, you don't look any different from any of these other pagans. Um, I have to turn my eyes away from these Christians 
um, the way they dress when they go out and suddenly they get famous. Um, it's like, what happened? The cares of the world. And so there's this saying that um, in Nashville that um, it's, it's a common saying that Christians come to Nashville to change Nashville, but Nashville changes them. It's just so common that you could Nashville is it's not just the country western capital of the world it's also the contemporary christian music capital of the world and if you really want to get found out and really move up the rank so to speak in christian music you move to Nashville and that's where you do your music uh, but so many of these people they go and they try to make it big and Nashville just changes them that's not everybody but it, it's it puts on display what Jesus is talking about here that kind of soil Verse 23, but he who receives seed on the good ground, so this is soft turned ground, is he who hears and the word, uh, hears the word and understands it. We haven't seen that word yet applied to the other uh, soils. Um, Who indeed bears fruit and produces some 160 and 30 uh, fold. And so, Notice, so we've got the word hears again. All of these soils, they hear it, but this is the only soil soil where they understand it and they're bearing fruit and there's various levels of production. And so in this explanation here, you see good ground, you see um, hearing and understanding, but you see different levels of fruitfulness. So it's clear that those that have this seed that grows up, they're not all going to be have the exact same level of production, but there is going to be production. Um, notice just a little bit of the irony here in this whole section. Um, why are the disciples blessed? They're blessed because their eyes see and their ears hear and Jesus is actually the very one that is telling them the explanation and so they're blessed because Jesus is giving them the explanation and so as he's telling them about these four soils it's pretty obvious that the disciples are which one of the four soils the soft ground they're getting the explanation Um, and then it begs the question, why would they be the soft ground? Because they are blessed. They're, the soil of their hearts has been turned by Christ and by his spirit. You know, soil doesn't turn itself over. None of your hearts just started turning itself. You know, you're not going to go out into a field and watch dirt just start popping up in the air. A person goes over and starts turning up soil putting good manure and stuff in that soil. Pastor Milton loves to get the fish guts that I bring home from Mammoth, and he puts fish guts in his soil and grows up these incredible tomatoes that are just amazing and juicy. But that soil didn't just suddenly start doing it to itself. And so, so again, there's kind of this, this whole narrative. There's people here who fit in different parts, aspects of the soil. The temptation, I know like, reading this as a young person, the temptation in reading this parable is for me to look at it and be like, okay, which soil do I need to work to become? I don't want to be that hard soil. I don't want to be the thorny soil. I don't want to be 
the stony soil. I want to be the soft ground. So what works do I need to do to become the soft ground? Now, there is an aspect of this parable that should give us warning, right? We should look at the soils and be like, Lord, help me. I don't want to be these. I don't want to be the thorny one. I don't want to just give into the cares of the world. That should be natural for us to do that. But if the only result we get is that we feel like we got to go out there and work to be the soft ground, we've missed the point. We've completely missed the point. Jesus says, blessed are your eyes and your ears. And then he explains it to them. And he's done this all on the back end of healing a deaf, blind, demon-possessed, mute. So the, so what should it should be just really crystal clear in the minds of the disciples. I need the Lord to turn over my heart. I need, if I'm going to be in this blessed place, I want to be poor in spirit. I want to look and see, yes, my heart could be just like that hard ground. My heart is stony at times. There are thorns that are always creeping in. Jesus, help me. Help my heart stay soft. And that's exactly the kind of prayer that he wants to, to hear, right? James tells us later, James would have heard this uh, this parable, and he says later, God resists the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. So we say, Lord, please grant me humility. Is that a prayer that Jesus wants to answer? <laughs> yeah. Lord, help me be humble. He wants to answer prayers like that. So you just step out baby steps of humility. Guess what? He wants to keep us humble. He wants to turn our hearts. This, by the way, this completely accords with what we see in the Old Testament. Remember, go back to Ezekiel. God promises in Ezekiel that he's going to take out a heart of what? Stone and leave a heart of flesh. Who does that? God or you? It's God. So so Christ is teaching very much in accord with the spirit of Ezekiel in the Old Testament that there is such a thing as a heart of stone. That's why you have these prophets going out and Israel and Judah is rejecting them. Um, but he comes along and he says, even though the Israel and Judah has rejected me, there is coming a day when I'm going to take out that heart of stone and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh so that they would um, want to and they would have the ability to obey my words and my law. So let's kind of make some summary statements here. Um, you guys are going to see I, I really like John Gill. All my quotes here are from John Gill. So John Gill is a Baptist theologian, pastor from the 1700s. He's an amazing guy. Um, So here's a couple things that he says in his summary summary of the uh, of this section. Looking at the the lesson concealed and the lesson revealed, uh, the fowls came and devoured them. That is the seed, and uh, the other evangelists say the fowls of the air and mean the devil so-called because their habitation is in the air. Hence, they are said to be the power of the air. And because of their ravenous and devouring nature, their swiftness to do mischief and their flocking in multitudes where the word is preached to hinder its usefulness as fowls do, where seed is sowing, Satan and his principalities and powers rove about in the air, come down on earth and seek whom they may devour and often mix themselves in religious assemblies to do what mischief they can. I don't know, I forget about that. You know, when we're preaching, you're sharing the gospel with a friend. It's not just about you making the most logical arguments. We do want to be logical. We do want to 
present the gospel well. We do want to have our lives on display, right, as a light. But there is there are spiritual realities that are going on here, and we don't always know what soil, what condition the heart is in. And so we just preach the gospel. We be faithful. Katie was telling me she's going through this series on biblical counseling, and Jim Newheiser was saying that we're not responsible for the results. We just want to be faithful. Just be faithful to counsel and teach the Word of God, and then we got to trust the Holy Spirit. We're not responsible to change anybody. You can't change anybody. Um, and we don't always know where the devil's plucking seed. But guess what? Who is the best teacher on the planet at this time in Earth's history? Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? And yet Jesus, when he's out teaching, he says there were, there's four soils when I teach, right? So the best teacher, the guy who has the best pedagogy, goes and preaches the word, and it's going to land in different places, right? And so it's not going to be any different with us. Um, it's the power of the gospel in hearts that have been prepared by the Spirit. Kiel goes on to say where they had not much earth to cover them and to take root. This is expressive of such persons who have slight conviction of sin and awakening of the natural conscience. Some little light speculative notions of the word in the understanding and judgment. Some flashes of natural affection for it. Outward expressions of delight and pleasure in it. Some show grace in a form of godliness, but no real heart for the work. I'll, I'll probably send all this to you. It's just, I love like his little summaries of each soil and kind of like where he would categorize them. Let me just take us to uh, kind of some, I, I think some concluding these are Gill's summary thoughts on this section of Scripture. Here we see set forth for us the nature of the Word of God, the work and business of ministering it. So as we're out ministering the Word and preaching the Gospel, the different success of preaching of it. So if you're preaching the Gospel and you're finding that not everybody's responding, guess what? Not everybody responded to Christ. And the fruitfulness of it. So there are going to be people whose hearts have been prepared by the Holy Spirit. We should expect that as well. So part of, I think, what I one of the things I was encouraged with is this idea that you also see in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like spread a lot of seed, right? It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to save people, but he's given us the human responsibility to go out and cast seed. And if we spread a lot of seed, guess what? Some of that seed's going to land in good ground. But if we're not casting a lot of seed, if we're just throwing one here and one there, then from a human perspective, it's kind of like, you know, what kind of fruit are we going to see from our ministries? Uh, we know this all is underneath God's counsels and sovereignty, but he has given us the human responsibility to go out and preach the gospel. So just cast it broad. Talk to everybody. Um, one of our brothers here at Cornerstone that I meet with periodically, um, he at his workplace, it seems like he's just always sharing the gospel. And there's people that have come to Cornerstone. There's people getting saved. And um, the Lord has put him in position where he's got an opportunity to talk to a lot of people. And I'm just like, man, I need, it just was hitting me this week. I need to pray for you more. And so I've just been praying for his brother. He's just, he's just an evangelist. And I'm so excited to have him on our team. Um, we could also say this, that we see an explanation of how to know when the word has been truly received. 
right? People are going to hear it, not just understand, not, no, but there's going to be some fruit that's born. doesn't mean everybody's going to have the same level of fruit, but there will be fruit born in their life. The various degrees of fruit it produces, the e- efficacy of it depends on the grace of God, which makes the heart good and fit to receive it. So we're not going to make it work. Efficacy just means what makes it work. It's the spirit of God. <clears throat> um, how few they be which hear the word in any spiritual advantage and benefit. It shouldn't discourage us that, you know, it doesn't seem like there's as many in the camp of the gospel as there are in the camp of in camps of wickedness. That's just part of this life until we get to heaven. Um how far persons may go in hearing and yet fall short of the grace of God, and therefore no dependence is to be had on the external hearing of the word. We have to remember that, especially as parents. We're raising kids up in the church, right? They hear the gospel every day of their lives. And just because they hear the gospel and they say, yeah, Jesus is a great guy. He's just all right with me. And, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, in this text, you have people who take joy, you have people who seem to really relish in the teaching. I've known people in my lifetime that have a great appreciation for good preaching. And yet when it, when it was all said and done, um, it didn't really seem like they knew Christ personally. And so we have to be very careful as we're trying to evaluate our own kids or as we're out preaching the gospel. People can have, do a lot of hearing And yet, if the fruit doesn't arise, they don't cause the fruit. The Holy Spirit causes the fruits, the fruits of the Spirit. But if the fruit's not there, we have to be very careful about granting affirmations of salvation or assurances of salvation to people who just like coming to church and hearing a good oration, right? Or some people just love the music, right? Some people will come to church just because they like the attention that they get from Christians. Christians tend to be loving people and they try to help people. Some people will come to church just because Christians help them. That doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is born again. And so um, we don't always know. I mean, the, the, the Lord knows. We just keep casting seed. Say it again. Yeah, yeah, it does depend yeah, on the context. That's true. Business contact. Oh, that's another one. Yeah, some people come to church for business contacts. Yeah, that's true. Multi-tier marketing. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, we don't have time to get into the other parable, but you guys could look at your material. There is some really good stuff on here. In your, in your lesson on kind of the hermeneutics of parables, I think we've tried to put that on display this morning. But the big thing I want us to walk away with, I know, if, I'll just be honest with you, this is one of those parables that I haven't really liked in the past. I've read through it, and I try to figure out which one of the soils I am, and I always walk away feeling kind of like, man, feeling discouraged, you know? Um But I think if we really understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish here, it should be an encouragement to us. Um, The other thing is, is we have to be careful. Jesus as Lord has the right to determine the us them. 
right? He knows who us, them is, and he knows who's part of them who will eventually become us. But we're not Jesus, and we don't always know where the hearts and soils are. So we have to be careful about doing the us, them thing ourselves. We don't always know. If you looked at the Apostle Paul just 30 minutes before he got saved, when he was heading up to kill some Christians, you would have said, he's them. You'd have thrown Paul right into the same category as many of the Pharisees. But then all of a sudden, his eyes were opened, right? And so that should humble us. Um, is our eyes got open not because we're so smart. Our eyes got open because God was very gracious and he blessed us. And we don't know who the Lord's going to bless and open eyes of. And so we just graciously, we cast out seed. Just like it says, I think it's in First Timothy, that we want to in gentleness and in patience teach others who are in opposition um, because we know they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will and we're waiting for, the, for God if he will perhaps grant them repentance. So there, there's no reason whatsoever for us to kind of stand and lord over other people whose eyes haven't been opened yet and say, why aren't you believing this stuff? Are you an idiot? It's just not appropriate. Um, I didn't come to Christ at 14 because I was so smart. The Lord just opened my eyes. And so we have every reason to be humble and uh, be gracious towards those that don't know him yet. At the same time, not to get discouraged when we're preaching the gospel. We don't see the results we're hoping for. And, um, and to be crying out that the Lord would keep our hearts soft. Lord, keep my heart soft. Uh, I want my, my heart to continually stay in that place where seed can easily be planted and that you can cause, cause the growth. Does that make sense? All right, I'm, I'm going to be up here. If you guys have questions, uh, we can chat a little bit. Next week, uh, we will be talking about the great I am passages. That's, and I'd love to go into that right now. That just makes me uh, salivate. Where's that? Uh, oh, it's, it's at the end somewhere. Anyway, just trust me. We're going to go into the great I am passages next week. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the wisdom that is put on display in passages like this. This We would never, as human beings, think of teaching in this kind of way. But you know all men, just as we learned last week. You know what's in man. And uh, and so we see in this passage you, on the one hand, concealing information from people that seem to be falling underneath judgment and revealing information to people that deserve that same judgment but you have shown grace and you have shown you've uh, you've blessed them we pray father that you would keep our ears open and our eyes open lord that as that that uh deaf blind mute that was demon possessed lord that we would see just the grace in our own lives Help us to continue to walk humbly before you. We pray, Father, that as we go out and share the gospel this week, that you would give us the, the boldness and the power to spread seed broadly um, and, and just recognize that you're the one that's going to bring the increase. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. It's not us. It's you that brings the increase. We thank you, Lord, that just as Peter was able to declare your son, as the Lord, um, that did not come 
because of flesh or blood, but because the Father had revealed that to Peter. And so we ask that you would continue to reveal your Son, Lord, to us through your Spirit. Bless us as we hear your word preached this morning, as we use our, our gifts for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.